Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Plus Four podcast, exploring the big wide world of Hickory Golf. I'm your host, Rob Berman. Episodes of this podcast reflect the personalities, the passion, and the pursuit of the game as it was played in the pre-1935 era across the world. Please subscribe and hit the like button to help us build our network of golfing fans coordinated in the United States through the Society of Hickory Golfers. And visit us online at plus4.org. Jeff, thanks so much for your time today and for joining us on the Plus Four podcast. It's such a treat to talk to you. I'm honored, Bob. Thank you for having me. Oh, my pleasure. If you could first just tell us how you got into collecting and golf. Well, when I was a young boy, I, I loved to collect baseball cards. I loved to collect rocks of all things. Mm-hmm. I collected coins. Had a lot of those coin books. You put the pennies and nickels and dimes in. And probably about 21, and I discovered you could collect golf. And I was now very much into the golf world as I you know, got into golf as a teenager. But my, my love for collecting coins and baseball cards as a kid transferred over to collecting into golf when I was about 21. And can I assume you were a youth in the 50s? Yeah, yeah. I was born in 52. So I was collecting in, the, in probably about, you know, 1959. I was seven. I was 59 when I got my first Mickey Mantle. I remember that. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's pretty neat. And where was this? Where did you grow up? Uh, I, I grew up in, in Oak Harbor where I was, I was born and raised, lived there for most of my life. Okay, that's Washington State for the benefit of our listeners. Sure. Now, I think you have some bona fides in playing golf as well, don't you? I used to play a lot when I was younger. I, I did play in such things as the U.S. Amateur and the U.S. Mid-Amateur. One year I was runner-up in the U.S. Mid-Amateur uh, back in Chicago. I, I, uh, I did win the Pacific Northwest Men's Championship in, I think it was 1984, and that's Tiger Woods also won that title. So it's kind of mm-hmm. my big claim to fame. I won something Tiger won once. Right. Upon. That's pretty neat. So if I could jump around just a little bit, I wanted to ask you if we blindfolded you and handed you six different clubs one at a time, what process would you go to to try to discern what we were putting in your hands? Well, I would, I would have to determine what it was in terms of a putter, driver, you know, if it's wood or an iron, all that sort of thing. So you're going to measure, try to feel how long it is, try to feel what the head's made out of, because you can discern the shape, that sort of thing. And now if you, if you handed me six long nose clubs made between 1780 and 1890, every 20 years, that's going to be a little bit, it's doable, but a little bit harder to do than if you, you know, a long nose club and a bulger driver and, you know, right. There, there's some real real um, giveaways and that sort of thing. But a lot of the patent clubs are also, I've handled so many, I think I could feel and tell most of the patent clubs. But mm-hmm. what, uh-huh. Okay. I was just curious about that because uh, how many golf clubs would you venture to guess that you've actually put your hands on? Millions? Oh, I've never put a number to it, but I've certainly looked at... <laughs> Uh, yeah, I, I don't know about millions. That's that's a big number, but but certainly tens of thousands, maybe into the hundreds of thousands. Certainly. Yeah. And uh, I don't know the answer to this. When did you get? When did you actually start collecting? You said you learned about it when you were twenty-one. Yeah. Well, that was when I was when I was twenty-one. I started. I, I went to a Goodwill store in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. There was seventy-five paper shaft clubs there, and so 
I asked the, the guy if I could make a deal. I'll buy all 75 for 25 bucks. And the guy said, sure. So I bought a barrel full of wow. Hickory Shaft Clubs from a Goodwill for 25 bucks. And this was 1970, uh, that's 74. So I was actually maybe 22 at the time when I bought these. But the, the, good, the good news was I asked around and I found the name of a collector who I called up and he came over to the house where I was staying. And his name was John Ross. And he's very familiar to a lot of the early members of the Golf Collector Society because John was an old school club maker, very, you know, knew Chick Evans quite well. He knew his clubs backwards and forwards. And he, he looked at those clubs and he said to me, well, where'd you get those? And I said, well, I got them at the Goodwill over on 82nd Street or something like that. He says, oh, yeah. they always call me up first. So I go over, take what I want. Then oh. they say whatever I don't want, you know. Right. And then he explained to me, I pretty much bought commons. But the good thing that he did was he had brought a long nose, cran clique, some of these other clubs to show me and educate me what actually was good. You know, really the kind of the, the cream you want to try to find if, you, if you're lucky. And so with that education, the, you know, I, I kind of the light went on in my head and go, oh, that's interesting. I never knew. So, uh, Jeff, I've run nonprofits for 30 years and I have the simple saying that I like that I sort of believe that I made up, but I think it applies to you too. People don't necessarily know what they like. They like what they know. And my experience comes from the mainly the music world. And in high school, I would have thought that I didn't like opera. But in college, when I started to learn about opera, I started to like opera. Mm. And it goes on and on, period, instrument, music, what, what have you. But I think with hickory clubs and early golf club collecting, the more you start to learn, the more you love the, the chase. That's very true. And for me, it's when I began to see the creativity and the artistry. Mm -hmm. And I, I remember the first long nose I looked at is like they golfed with that. I couldn't believe that people played golf with a club that looked pretty much like a cross between a club head anyway, a cross between a banana and a hockey stick. Right. It was just, I was just blown away and it just captured my imagination, you might say. Mm, interesting. So everybody knows that you're a specialist in golf club collecting. Have you ventured into other areas of collectibles too? When I started collecting uh, aggressively, and that would have been the mid '80s, maybe '86, I went to my first auction. Uh, my, I think my first auction might have been. It was right around the mid 1980s over at the UK. I actually went over to a January auction in Chester, and I started collecting aggressively. And I wasn't too terribly particular. I was just trying to find really nice items, be they ceramics, be they balls, be they clubs. I got a, a few nice, real nice pieces of artwork. And as time went on, you know, there's an education that occurs. As you say, you then discover what you really do like. And, and I found that I was captivated more and more by the clubs. And so I sold or traded those other things so I could kind of feed my addiction to clubs. Yeah, I love that. Could you talk just a little bit about the steps you consider when you take possession of an antique club? What do you do once you now own a, an antique. Are there things you do in terms of restoration or repair? Before I answer that question, let me just say, you know, before I take ownership of the club, I really look really hard at it. And I look at it in such a way that I try to determine if there's a reason, this, this is paramount in my thinking, is there a reason I don't want this club? Mm -hmm. 
I, I look at that was the primary focus all too often. I've seen collectors pick up a club and go, oh, wow, this is fabulous, this is exciting, and they buy it, and they bring it, and they show it to me, and they tell me how excited they are, and it's not real. Right. Because they, they like to think they were so fortunate to be in the right place at the right time to get this, this unusual rake iron with holes drilled through the face and teeth on the bottom and jagged edges across the top. They didn't realize it was a $3 bill. And so I always look at anything initially to see if it's – if there's a reason not to buy it. Now, once I own a club and I, and I, you, you do the math on this, so to speak, you add up the numbers prior to buying it because you look at all the, all the aspects of a golf club. This is a big topic you asked me about. You want to see how original the club is. And so you want to see condition, of course, condition, 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 like mm -hmm. location. You want to see the condition overall and how original things are to the, to it. Now, the thing is, there are certain things you can live with that aren't perfect. For example, some people, the grip has been replaced. They might reject the club because the grip has been replaced. When if the club is, let's say, a rake iron or something like that, the club head is the feature, not the grip. The, the, a rake iron, that, that, that has such a visual impact to the viewer, uh, it's worth a fair bit of money. And if the grip's been changed, it'd be best if it hadn't been. But that's not a big deal to the value of that club or to my interest in that club, especially if it's a rake iron I don't have, because I can't just have everything be perfect. So you have to learn how to settle on or what or what you're willing to settle, settle on, you might say. So <laughs> so you, you go all the way through it. You look at what's been changed, like whipping on a long nose club. If it's a long nose club or Robert Forgan that that uh, has got a bunch of aches and pains and, and it's gonna and it's got new whipping then you pass it by there's too much that that isn't quite right but if it's a beautiful example from 1870 or 75 and yes it has replaced whipping on it that's not the end of the world at all because you can redo that whipping in period style to where it'll present just like you can redo sure. a grip style where it will present and you still have a very worthy collectible so there's certain things you live with. Now, if we've had the face pushed back, filed on, it's, you know, to take the curve out of a out of a long nose putter or plate or, or a middle spoon or something, because you see that from time to time, that's a definite no. I won't settle on that unless, of course, it's like a Simon Coster or something that is so old and so rare. I know I'll never get a chance. You just sometimes just have to take the good with the bad. Sure. But uh, in most instances. Like in my auction, if the face has been pushed back, I don't like to, I don't, I don't offer such clubs, you know. Now, are you familiar with when Forgan began to use the plume mark? Sure. Is, is this something you just know by heart because you've been into this for so long? Well, I've written, you know, the club maker's art and, and those books are pretty detailed and I go into great, you know, effort to try to understand all, all the different aspects of as many clubs as I can, but I can't remember everything. And that's kind yes. of why I because I can look there, but Forgan is pretty simple. 1863 is when he mm -hmm. was a club maker to the, his Royal Highness, the Prince of Wales. And he took over from Hugh Philp in 1856. So the clubs made, and there were nothing stamped other than our Forgan on the top of the head. And so those clubs, you know, are made right in that window of time. Right. Great. If you had to pick one style of club as your personal interest, what style of club would that be? Oh boy. You asked me to say which one is my favorite kid, you know, or which which children I like best, and I and they're all just special. But you, I divide them up. You got your early irons, you got your long nose clubs, you got your patent clubs, 
And then, of course, you can have some people like to collect players clubs and, and, and that's and that's all good and fine. When I when I collected, I built my collection wanting one of everything and I wanted from the oldest to the, to the most unusual. And so I, I pretty much covered. I, of course, I didn't get one of everything, but I got as close as anybody ever has. I, I simply I just I just spread that interest from top to bottom. Now, having said that, I own a couple of clubs that I'm absolutely thrilled with that, you know, are the bees knees. But I don't I just can't say, oh, I just love patent clubs or I just love long nose clubs or I just love early irons. They're, I, all three are just for me. They speak my language. That square toe iron in your portrait photo, I would imagine is a favorite, but that's just me forecasting what I would think. That that club has a lot of history to it because that sold at auction. I think, oh gosh, I got to think back now to when that sold at auction. It was in the 1990s, early on, and it sold for a lot of money to Jamie Patino. Because I've owned two clubs, both of those square toe irons, they sold in the same summer. I think it was 19... Uh, I got to do the math here. 77, 87. I think it was probably around 1992. They both sold at auction. One summer, there was like two great irons. I ended up owning them both, but well after the fact. And the one in the portrait, I do believe that one was owned by Jamie Patino. And that was out of his auction. And I was just, just thrilled to get it. I never thought I would. Yeah. You, I assume you knew Dick Esty? Extremely well. Yeah. Yes. I mean, I had the benefit of seeing his collection while he was alive and uh, his case of square toe irons was such a revelation. Most of us don't get to be that close to those kind of clubs. And um, the day we toured his collection, I happened to love from your book, the Ralph Tyler Niblick, which captured my imagination in your book because until I saw your publication, I'd never seen a picture of any club that looked like that. And so I asked Dick on the tour if he had one of those and he did, and he was nice enough to take it out of the case and let me handle it. I had no idea why would somebody design a niblick like that? But the, the square toe irons to me, I just love the early, early stuff. I don't own any of them, but I would love to know the weight of those clubs just to hold it in my hands. Well, they're heavier. I mean, those iron heads, they're heavier. That's, excuse me, that's, that's part of the characteristics that they were, they weren't as refined back in the 1600s, 1700s, early 1800s. They weren't as refined, but you see over time, they became refined to sure. where, you know, by 1900, now the irons are delicate instruments compared to what was right. made. In exactly. Yeah. Could you talk just a little bit about the journey into publishing? How long did that take? And when did you first have the idea to try to put a, put together the club makers art? Oh, that's a really good question. Well, in the 1970s, I love, I love collecting and I got really, not hickories, but that was, you know, the classic clubs. I was doing that. Then in the 1980s, I got focused in on the, the hickory shaft clubs, but, but other than a couple of books, that kind of had a, a glossing over of the topic. There was no books I could go to that would give me all the answers. Not that any book ever will, but I was finding that as I was collecting, there was a lot of things that, that I didn't understand about the club, but I still love the club. So I started doing research. I bought all the golf magazines from, from 1890 to 1899, the complete run, as well as a, a very large run of golf illustrateds, which took over for golf, the a royal record of the a weekly record of the Royal and Ancient Game. 
when the, when the Golf Illustrated came out, it took over, went on for many more years, and I got a large run of those. And I found as I went through those page by page, photocopying anything of interest, I found a lot of history about these clubs and who made them and the characters behind them and their advertisements, uh, all that sort of thing. I then went to the British Patent Library and found more information. And then I just said, I've got to write it. Right. I've got to write this because I, I'm in an area that's, that's never been explored, you might say. And so, so, so when I wrote the book, people said, who was your target market? I did not have a target market. I had an end goal. And my end goal was write the most complete book about antique golf clubs that would be written in my lifetime. And if I die tomorrow, I will have succeeded. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and was you know, that process must have been years in the making? Yeah, the, the first, when I started writing, it was 1987, and I thought it would take two years if I worked really hard, and I did. I worked day and night, and two years later, I wasn't even close, of course, and so I thought, well, two more years, worked really hard day and night, and it wasn't close, but now I was so deep into it, I couldn't quit. Yet most rational people would have quit because all the time that I spent, and so, in, 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 anyway, it took 10 years to get to 1997 before mm -hmm. the first came out, then the second edition that was 10 years later with a, with a, you know, I think I had, gosh, there was probably 70 other replicant fake clubs I included in there and I hundred and some odd other antique clubs I was able to put in there. So to, to, to fill it out and flush it out. And uh, finding a publisher, was that complicated? Well, I always tell people I own the publishing company. Oh, you do? Because, yeah, because Zephyr Productions... I formed Zephyr Productions to publish the book because I asked a... Uh, there was a book I used kind of like a uh, inspiration for me. There was a guy that wrote a book and it was called Painted Ponies. It was all about carousel art, all these hand carved, you know, horses from carousels and people would restore them and buy them and put them in their homes. And this guy did a book about it. And I read about it and saw the book and thought it was great. So I'm doing my book and I think, well, I should call this guy up and see if he knows the publisher or something. Anyway, I talked to the guy, I tell him what I'm doing. And he basically said, well, if your book is going to be 500 or 600 pages long, you got no chance because there's not a lady alive that's going to buy a 600 page book in Barnes and Noble in the mall and carry it around all day, you know, because most books are given as gifts or that sort of thing. And so I knew that I'm not going to get a normal publisher to do what I wanted to do. And so I self-funded it for my own publishing company. I picked who I wanted to do for the layout. I mean, I went, I went top drawer all the way in terms of, of I just, this isn't a desktop publishing job at home. Clubmaker right. took it to a company called Opus Productions, and they had done books about Arnold Palmer, NHL, uh, hockey stars, Europe and Canada. But anyway, I, 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 uh, I pretty much did it myself. And uh, one of the questions I had was about the photography. Did you do that? I mean, how, how on earth did you collect all of these images? Well, I owned all the clubs. Oh, and, and so I took all of the images and the, and, the, and the yes, I did all the photography and the photography was a journey just as involved as the research on on who made that club and trying to figure that out and trying to figure out how to take these photos was was a big job because I, I went through a number of cameras and a number of different types of settings. And then I finally met with a professional photographer, who gave me some guidance because I couldn't afford to pay somebody right. to with me and take these pictures and all this stuff and so anyway he gave me some guidance i followed it i i learned how to take good pictures of, of antique golf clubs because all those pictures in all of my books uh except for the ping book 
so there's a few in there that are mine, but those, those are mostly either uh, professional photos from Associated Press or, or uh, some of the ping images from, from, from their, own, their own archives. Mm-hmm. So, but, but of the clubs, the antique clubs, those are mostly always my images. And I assume the Troon clubs you didn't own, but other than that. That's right. And, yeah. and clubs, not on the Troon clubs, and I did not take those pictures. Right, the, yeah, right. I took my camera over and I took pictures of them when they were standing up, when they were still at the Troon clubhouse. I did do that, but I did, was unable to take them out of the case. And so my pictures paled in comparison to the ones that are in my book now, which I was very graciously granted the right to publish those from the fellow who had taken those back at the time in your heart of hearts do you believe there are other clubs like that somewhere yet undiscovered yeah not not a set like that not no not a set like that but i believe there are other really old clubs that just we've not seen yet yeah that's incredible isn't it not many but i do i do feel that there's the next 10 years there'll be another one or two that's going to pop out yeah, it's like archaeology. Can you tell us what you've gleaned in general high high 30,000 foot view terms in terms of, let's say, 18th century clubs? I was just curious. Through this podcast, I've talked to people that have, you know, played with featheries and things like that. Are, are those really early play clubs lighter than those that came in the 19th century, for instance? Yeah, some of the clubs are pretty light. That's That's true. That's very true. But I wouldn't say that there was a big dramatic difference because from my experience i've not gone around weighing them and putting them on a scale or doing dead weight measurements but just in handling them they're they're a little more delicate and so so but they're still well balanced yeah that's the, that i think a lot of people don't really understand is clubs made 19 or sorry 1750 the people knew what they were doing when they were making them and they knew how to weigh them and 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 cut them and shape them to, to fit the standard of the day. And so it wasn't just a haphazard thing. And, 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 but from one club to the next, like a, a play club compared to a, a bathing spoon or back then call it a scraper or whatever, you're going to get more weight in, in the shorter shafted, well lofted clubs. They're going to be heavier because they're having sure. to more battle in the grass. Yeah. 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 It was always said that Alan Robertson's clubs were particularly light. Could you say that, have you ever handled a club that Alan Robertson allegedly used or owned? Well, um, one of the clubs in Clubmaker's Art I owned for a while was a, was a, was a track iron, it's carrot track iron, that has two notches on the shaft, which I, I believe indicate that Robertson owned that club twice. To say that he used it, he, I believe he did, because he's, he notched the clubs that he when he bought them, he'd notch them when he'd sell when he, you know, so that when he sold them, he, he knew that they were his, that they came back again, because he went through clubs. He was a bit of a club jockey. So that would be one club I would say, yep, that one probably in his stamp Morris on the shaft. And so that hmm. club probably was, you know, used by or, you know, handled briefly anyway by uh, both Robertson and Morris. Yeah, I love it. There's a there's a dealer in Pinehurst that has a play club with notches in the handle, and he was he showed it to me and said that it was allegedly owned by Roberts, and that's why I asked. Are there other traits like that that are dead giveaways of uh, provenance? Well, see, you got to be careful. And when you say dead giveaways of provenance, I first read this thing about Robertson notching his shafts comes from an 1896 interview with a guy named William Payton that was in um, the Golfer magazine, and he said. 
he was born, uh, he was he was just a lad, and Robertson even gave him a club, and it had four notches in it, and he learned that Robertson notched his, his shafts. And I never wrote about that until I actually got one of those clubs in, and, it, and everything about it seemed impeccable in terms of its history, and I believe that the people, and I have a provenance where it came from, Donald Steele and Mackenzie Ross, they own this club and and they're not they wouldn't they didn't know about this interview and and what robertson did but it had the two nicks in the shaft the whole point being is that it's real easy to nick a shaft and so i didn't put it in first edition club makers art because i was afraid people would notch a shaft said yep alan robertson owned this club so just having a notch in the shaft isn't a fail proof indication of who owned it because Mm -hmm. it's anybody can cut a notch in the shaft so for my money for me to collect it that alan robertson owned that club there'd have to be a lot more about it that seemed absolutely right in your comment that the robertson always used light clubs i've not seen that printed anywhere in any periodical or letter or literature of the time so i don't know where that came from and that's not something i myself would accept as being oh yeah he used light clubs that could easily be just kind of something that has bloomed here in the last 10 years. Uh, but I've never seen it, where that came from. And I'm pretty strict about that. In my yeah. own club, I like to know the reference and the source of, of uh, so-called, um, you know, facts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I would imagine with a notch, you know, I watch, uh, there's this great show on the BBC called Faker Fortune, which looks at works of art. And their aim is to s- discover what they call sleepers, you know, these pieces that come up at auction that could potentially have a much more valuable painting as the underlayer that was, you know, later touched up and the value therefore decreased. But they subject a lot of this artwork to x-ray and many other scientific measures. You could probably do something with the notch to see how it was cut and whether it's modern or period. And it doesn't matter, but anyway. I don't know that anybody would go to that extreme. And I don't know if anybody would be the results of it. I knew a guy who had a club. We said it was, you know, um, carbon dated. The wood was carbon dated mm. 1600. And I still don't buy into the club being from 1600 at all because who knows the history of that wood or the accuracy of the carbon dating or anything. Cause the club itself does not look 1600 and it looks very much like a caddy club from the 1800s which were very crude and unusual but there were caddy clubs made so it's like yeah it's people are very creative in how they um doctor things today and so yeah so that's an interesting term i've never heard that term but that is a homemade club a caddy club yeah oh yeah and and they were played by with used by caddies couldn't afford real clubs and there's articles about them shows caddies and their clubs and it's, you know, they're just tree stumps or tree branches for all intents and purposes, you know. Or yeah. Just, I know just, Harry Varden, Varden started that way, too. Just a, maybe this is a naive question, but I've seen the Harry Varden or the Tom Varden clubs that I've seen look fairly crude in terms of lettering. Is that is that true? Were the were the Varden clubs maybe not stamped, but hand carved in terms of the name? Are you talking woods or irons? I'm talking woods. All right. If you're talking, if you're talking woods, the ones I've seen, clubmaker stamps are all like one. The, all the letters are on one stamp where they put the thing on the on the yeah. wood. And yeah. One one blow of a hammer puts the whole name in. Right. 
that Barden stamp should look just as nice as anybody else's name stamp. If it's one letter at a time or something's monkeyed with it, it doesn't seem quite right. Then the stamp is not right. It's, yeah. it's something like that. I've been, the thing about Club Makers Art Second Edition, the, it's worth the price of admission just for the 70 fake and replica clubs in the back because mm. I sh that's done. I show examples and I still see people today even with some of the clubs in that book, buying them going, oh, great, look what I've got. I said, oh, great, I wrote about that 13 years ago, it's fake. And here's why, you'll find it on this page, you know? And so so I, I would never say that the Barden clubs, Tom or Harry, were made any different in their stamps than anybody else at that period of time. Good, good, I understand. Could you talk a little bit about the elements of research that led to your book? You talked about the patent office. What, what else? You talked about all the magazines you collected. Anything uh, surprising that might surprise the listeners in terms of all the time you spent researching your book? Oh, goodness sakes. Well, just, just at the patent office, I went over, that was over in London, and I went over there a couple of times because I couldn't do it all at once. Uh, didn't have the time the first time, so I went the second time. My daughter was with me. She ended up sleeping on the floor of the library there because I was there all day. <laughs> all the, the, the patent record briefs where you just get a little synopsis, and then, then I would find it on, here's a good one here. I'd write the patent number down and the name of the person, go on to the next page. Oh, here's one here. And I ended up with, I don't know, 700 or something like that. Well, I then had to contact the British Library right you know, there and say, I want copies of these patents. And it was like seven bucks a piece. And so I paid the, I paid the number to, to, to get 700 patents sent to me, copies of So I have them all. I did the same oh. for, for the U.S. patents way back when. Bob Koontz, he had a big, you know, file cabinet full of research that he had done. I paid 2,000 bucks to get all of his research photocopied and sent to me. He was kind enough to share it with me. And it just took a lot of time and photocopying to get that done. You know, I went to every library I could go to. The Ralph Miller Golf Library was in Industry Hills. I went to the Otter Probst Library, which is at the PGA uh, Hall of Fame when it was in Pinehurst. I went to libraries over in the UK. I ended up at the library in uh, Cooper, just outside of St. Andrews, to get into the, to, the, to the newspapers and stuff from the 1800s that they're held there on microfilm. Uh, St. Andrews Library. You just to do the research, it, I, I went to all these libraries and and like I was I think I was a week at the, the Real Golf Hall of Fame library because you don't just do you've got to do all the periodicals, but you do the books, too. Yeah. You know, you, anything that will that will relate to club makers, the people who uh, the, the clubs they made, uh, just any of that sort of thing, the balls that would tie it, tie into what I was doing and writing about clubs and who made. And uh, Jeff, would any of the prominent clubs allow you to come in and see their displays at all when you were over there? Yes, I would. I should say yes. I didn't see all of them, that's for sure. But I did get into Blackheath, I Royal mm. Liverpool. I never got into the, the RNA, but I. But the library was. I mean, the little museum was there, so I was able to go in, and that's that was a gold mine. You know, right. that just, you know, so so I think most of the good stuff is probably right there. So. So, I mean, here in America, there was about two or three clubs with really great collections. The Los Angeles Country Club has a fabulous collection, the Hopeware collection. It was bought in like 1929, I think. This guy bought all these clubs in the UK and balls and brought them over to the club at Los in the LA Country Club, and they they, they scored. He happened to do, do a, a you know, get a good a real good collection. 
do you have any singular uh, feelings about clubs you got that were especially varied in the cost to value ratio where you got such a good deal and it just, it sticks in your memory as one of the best finds that you've ever had. When I was doing most of my real serious collecting, because I, again, I owned every club that was in club makers art, except for the true clubs. I wasn't really worried about getting the great deal. Now, there was some items I bought. I said, oh, man, I really scored on this because nobody knew what it was. And I did. I'd been doing all this research. I computerized so much of it that I was able to, you know, go to an auction in the UK and go, wow, I've never seen this. You know, it's a wood head with a disc on the top and these metal rods come out the back and it's got a, a face that projects forward. It's got springs behind it. What is this? Well, I could type in my computer. I can, oh. That was patented in 1912 by such and such. And it's a practice club. It, it, you reset it this way. Here's how it works. Nobody knew what that was, you know, but I, you know, I maybe buy it for 150 pounds or something mm -hmm. like that. So I knew I scored, but I think for me, the, there was great fun in all of this in, in the collecting. It wasn't just about the money because oftentimes I paid through the nose and I knew I was losing money because I simply wanted the club. I wasn't worried about, I just wanted the club. I needed it for the book, but there, there were occasions when I would, I'll just tell you a short story. There was an auction that uh, Kevin McGrath held back in Boston, Massachusetts. It was probably early 1990s. And Leo Kelly was a great dealer. He was a member of the Golf Collector Society. Everybody loved Leo, really a nice guy. I love Leo. He, he was, he was a, just a great guy. He had just sold a collection, to, he brokered it. And, and, and it was like a $3 million collection. And so Leo, he, was, he had money. And so in this auction, that the, for the afternoon session, he comes up to me and he says, Jeff, I think there's a couple of clubs you and I might be bidding against each other on. And so I knew exactly what he was talking about. I knew the two clubs extremely well. There's a couple of mechanical clubs in there that were really wild. I've never seen them before. I believed I would never see them again because they weren't beautifully made but they were extremely well made. And you could tell when something goes into production, when something is just made, you mm -hmm. know, but yeah, so th these were production clubs. And so I knew I wanted, but I, I tell Leo, no, I'm not, you know, I, I don't think there's anything here really for me. Right. And so when the auction starts for that afternoon, I had told a friend of mine, I got him a bidding paddle and I said, okay, Here's the paddle. When these two clubs come up, I'm going to bid to $4,000. But if, when I stop, if I stop, if I don't get it at $4,000, you take over for me, right? So when those lots come up, I position myself up in the, in the middle of the room, standing against the post where Leo, he sits standing in the back. Leo can see real well, right? Uh -huh. So I look around because I know who's going to be bidding because the thing is only estimated like at $1,000 to to $1,500 is what they're estimated at the time. So I'm bidding along, I'm raising my paddle, I'm going, so, so I got it at 3,800 and it's 4,000. So Leo bids 4,000 in the back. So when it comes to 4,200, I'm out, but I don't, I shake my head, nope, wave my arms, nope, too much, too much. I sit down in my chair, I'm out. And so anybody else in the room for 4,200 and my friend waves his paddle and he gets it for 4,200, right? And it's the same on both clubs. And so I'm thrilled. I got these two clubs and the thing ends, Leo comes up to me. He's, I don't know how he, how he figured it out. He comes up, comes up to me, he goes, did you buy those two clubs? I sure did, Leo. 
<laughs> and he laughs big and I laugh. And, and, and the funny thing is he, he was very gracious about it. And it's just a game that grown right. men play sometimes, you know. But I'm sure others have done the same to me, you know, fooled me on stuff like that. But that, that was a special memory with me. That is great. I love that. So what did you do over the years with each of these clubs? Did you display them or how on earth did you handle that aspect? Well, I certainly didn't. I displayed a few, but not very many because my collection at its, at its fullest, there was over about 800 clubs. And I actually figured out a way I could, I bought a bunch of boxes. I think the boxes were four by six or four by seven, or maybe five by seven or five. Anyway, they're about four, just say four by six, 52 inches or 48 inches long. And I would stick these clubs. I would pack it both ends like sardines. And then once they're packed in, put the top on, tape them up. So the clubs are packed not so tight that they're going to scratch each other, but plenty tight so they don't move around. And then I stack them in a vault because mm. got like 15 or 16 clubs in a box. I stack them in a vault and I can store 600 clubs in a vault. And, and I have the boxes numbered and the clubs are identified. So I know which club is in which box. So if I need to get a club out, which I did for my photography work, because my photography was ongoing across the 10 years I was writing because I would, I would up my uh, quality, you might say. So I had to reshoot a number of things because I was not born a photographer. By mm -hmm. the time I done, though, they turned out pretty good. I think most people would agree. But um, so I saw them a lot in terms of going through to take photography, but I never had them on display other than they were on display in, in 2002, uh, actually 2003, right next door to Spago. I went down to Los Angeles. My wife was sick. Uh, she was actually terminally ill. And so I had this great collection and now what am I going to do with it? Because I know my wife's disease, I'm going to become a caretaker, which I did um, for the last seven years of her life. I became pretty much a full-time caretaker, which so I had to sell this collection, which would free me up from having to um, babysit and curate these clubs. And it also allowed me to be a caretaker, not have to worry about, you know, going to work. And so we put them on display down at Spago, I just come out with the golf club, the, and, and so that was a real good lead in for people. And hoping maybe somebody would buy the whole collection or something. See, you know, all the money in Los Angeles, movie sure. star. But anyway, that did not happen. But it was a worthy event because I did have some other business connections that came out of that. But then a couple other times, the PGA uh, uh, golf show had me bring the collection down a couple times and display it. They didn't charge me. Um, so I got to see it there when it was all that cases made for these clubs. And then again, at Sotheby's when we sold them in 2007, I had cases, I used those same cases and I got to see them there in the cases. So when other people saw my collection, I was as excited as they were right. because I got to see it very often. Yeah. It just, just for fun. Also, when you describe a vault, is that a temperature controlled space somewhere? Yeah, you might say that, um, it's a temperature controlled space somewhere. Yes. Okay. Okay. That's good enough. I've read, uh, well, first of all, could you just talk briefly about how your competition has changed over the years? How has that changed at auction? Oh. If, if at all? Oh gosh, it's changed. It was, it, the competition was stiff in years past during the 1990s. It just kept building. It was stiff 2001 with, 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 with nine 11, uh, everything dropped off the face of the earth. Nobody cared to collect after that. And it slowly built back up. 2007, eight was doing much better, but then the great recession, it dropped way back down again. And it still never fully recovered. 
back in the 1990s, you had you know, a number of individuals that had pretty deep pockets and they didn't care what it cost and they really duped it out. And so if I wanted something, there was a, a Jackson Club in both issues, uh, editions of the Club Maker's Art. I paid $30,000 for that oh. thing. Money on, on it. But that's what they were selling for if I wanted to, wanted to own it. And I, and, and I knew who I was bidding against. That, that was a club where Jamie Patino wanted that club. And he only bought the best. Well, I wanted that one because I, I had to have it for Club Makers Art. So some stuff really went really went high, went strong. There was stiffer competition back then. Today mm-hmm. is a fabulous time to collect. There's a, mm-hmm. I've got, I got a little mechanical club, a Fitzjohn, coming out in my next auction. It's like $500 start price. I paid 6,000 for one of those back in, I think, 1996, right before Club Makers Art published. And, you know, and so I, I needed one for my book and that's what it cost, you know, but now it's like one-tenth, I mean, at least at the start price, maybe this one will, the bidding will drive it up a little bit, but it's a great time to collect now. The prices are not, not nearly as strong as what they once were. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Do you have any opinion about the first makers to put their names on clubs? You know, I hear a lot, I see a lot of opinions about that, but who, who do you put up in that pantheon as some of the first club makers to affix their name? Well, uh, the first club makers that I know of to fix their name would be um, James McEwen. He was, he was born in, uh, sorry, he started club making in 1770. And then, then Simon Kosser, he started making clubs in about 1785. And there's clubs out there, Stamp Kosser, Leith. And then there's also um, uh, Alexander Nielsen, who died in 1787. And his clubs are stamped uh, mm-hmm. Nielsen. And so you know that first off, Nielsen dying in 1787, you don't know when he started, but he was making clubs before James McEwen is making clubs. And we don't know when James McEwen actually started using a name stamp. We don't know, but we know he started in 1770. But does that mean he had a club stamp in 1770? Not necessarily. Most of the guys didn't at that point in time. So those would be the three guys that I would tip my hat to, McEwen, Kosser, uh nielsen in terms of the earliest three to mark their clubs with their name now there is an account that was that was written in 16 like 1607 or something like that and it said that the guy who made the club marked his initials on the club and then the owner of the club also had his initials put on the club so you'd see the initials of of the maker on the club and andrew dixon was reported by the McEwens and other people and the McEwens they've just you know, right down the street from Leith and Musselboro. And so they, they, you know, James McEwen and, and the Dixon family were, you know, they knew each other basically. Sure. They, were, they were in the same world, let's just say that. But he's reported to have stamped his clubs AD. And so I personally believe, and I think history bears out, that the first clubs marked by club makers were marked with initials. Mm-hmm. We just and don't I- know. Obviously, all of those examples you just gave are wood clubs. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Iron clubs, not so much. They didn't bother to mark any irons that I've seen. I think the earliest iron I've seen with the name on it had Porteous on it, probably dates to 1830 or something like that. There's another iron out there, 1836. It was engraved as a gift to somebody, but the maker's name was not put on there. There, there's everybody knows John Gray, but then there's a club stamp A Gray that, that predate the John Gray clubs, but they're still not going to date much for, for 1840 or something like that, from my, my opinion, from what I've seen. 
uh, possibly 1835 or somewhere in there. But the clique makers back then, they were simply blacksmiths. And so they didn't they didn't care about putting their names on for a a golf market because it was a very small market. Irons could be passed down. They never just a new shaft is all you needed. For a wood club breaks, you need a new wood club. Yeah, that, there's. I've seen a picture of the Smithy at Gullen, and it's somewhere someday I want to go visit if that building is still there. Yeah. Would you agree with the statement that there's nothing new in golf? That's 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 actually surprisingly more true than than not. There there's simply variations on the themes that were created and 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 tried many years of, over a century ago, or you know, between 1890 and and even a little bit before and. Uh, the early 1900s, there was so much that was devised, and, and even up until 1950. Of course, the creative process continues on, but it's more they're, they're now kind of using better materials, better engineering. They're, they're kind of cleaning the designs up so they now work. You know, like metal, the first metal woods came out. They didn't really revolutionize the game at all. Uh, the metal, the, the first aluminum, it would crack. It wasn't very strong, but we got titanium today. Still a metal wood, but man, it's the faces, those, you know, trampoline effect. It's a way better, you know, club. So they've, they've perfected it today. Well, you, it's interesting. You mentioned uh, this idea of a club working. I, I've always been curious about these giant niblicks. Uh, was that a sensible concept? And do you know anything about why people would have conceived of a club like that? Well, I sure, I sure do. They conceived of a club like that to make money. That's that's the bottom. So much of this stuff that was created, I swear, it's because they come up with a new idea, and if it works, and if they strike it rich, they're going to make a lot of money. And so they come up with this big idea because they 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 have this theory in their head: the big giant niblick, whatever. They think, oh, big niblick more surface area to hit the ball with. So if you're in the sand, it looks like it'd be easier to get out of the sand because you've got this big head that you just can't miss with, right? Well, the sweet spot's still the same tiny little pinhead on, on that. Right. Still really tough to hit. But that was the whole idea that they would try to sell this this idea to the, the, the golfer that it was a better club, that it would, you know, larger, larger face and that, I'm sure they've said larger sweet spot, but it was again to get the ball out of trouble, out of hay, out of high grass, out of the sand. But it's so big, it and for my money, it just tangles up more, lifts more sand, and makes it harder. Yeah, I would think so. I've never seen one, I've never held one, but I imagine they dig like hell, and they're probably extremely ineffective. Yeah, I mean, there's there's the giant niblicks, and then there's the super giant niblick clubs that are just really big, and those. There's not very many of those. The giant niblicks, those are maybe up to four inches from the bottom of the face to the top of the face. Those things, they they sold a number of those, and, and people tried them before they left them behind. But the super giant niblicks, those things, I've I've owned a couple. And when you swing them, I don't even want to take a full swing because it feels like it's going to snap the shaft. The head right. is heavy. Right. So no, if for more display or presentation piece or exactly what, but I just don't believe they were actually made to to be used by most golfers, that's for sure. Yeah. Jeff, is there ever a time you would purchase a replica club? Yeah, absolutely. I own some. I own them only so I can show other people a replica club. Mm. No, if I'm, if I'm a, a strict, if I'm really building a collection and I, and I, I, 
I, you know, value my collection and, and it's my own opinion here. I wouldn't want an antique club in that collection because you can make antique clubs look really good. And, and most people can't tell the difference. You know, if, if they're novices, they go in, they look at, you know, five clubs on a wall and one's a, a replica. They're not going to really know which one's a replica. So if you've got 25 clubs on the wall and one of them's a replica and you show them to your friends, and, oh, yeah, this one's a replica. They're going to go, well, gee, your real clubs look just like the replica clubs. What's the big deal on the real clubs? I, I think it kind of can be counterproductive if you're a, a serious collector. But now, if you simply enjoy the clubs for what they are as replicas and you're not worried about impressing your friends with a big collection or having all this original stuff in your collection you don't want it tainted with dirty water so to speak yeah to get a, a copy of an old square toe iron or a old true long nose club or something those are great they're a lot of fun and and they do give a sense of what the clubs were like that people can enjoy right here now because the guys who make replica clubs they take today they're taking great care and trying to do it as best they can and, and give it a nice look a nice presentation and they're good you know i mean they look really good so i don't mean to speak ill of them at all they have their place but if you're really trying to to make a serious collection build a serious collection you don't buy a replica tom morris to fit in there because you don't have yeah. a real yeah yeah, yeah. the real one yeah it's clear to me through this conversation that you collect for value I collect for history. Uh -huh. I mean, I collect for history. I want the historical artifacts. That's right. what I'm not, as I've told you earlier, oftentimes way overpaid for clubs. And I overpaid because I wanted that club, you know? And so um, for me, I always, tell, I always tell people when they ask about how do you collect golf clubs? What should I buy? I get that question a lot. And I say, well, if you buy a club, here's a good measure. If you buy a club and you put it on the wall and all you see is the money you spent, you make a bad purchase. Yeah. But if you buy a club and put it on a wall, an old antique club and put it on a wall and you see a work of art, you made a great buy. Yeah. You know, that's that for me, that always comes in as, 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 a, as a work of art. You know, I mean, I see these things truly as crafted by artisans who were so skilled and, and so important to the history of the game that they just speak to me. Yeah, that is such a good answer. I absolutely love it. I've, I'm a fan of the Boosie stitch grip. And I learned, you know, just through reading that Boosie had been a saddle maker. So it makes sense that he would have experimented with a stitched grip. Just talking briefly about grips, are there other interesting grips or the history of grips that you have found intriguing? They've made a lot of different grips. Absolutely. You, you've got braided um, leather grips. You've got braided cord grips. You've got India rubber grips. You've got leather and India rubber washers stacked one on top of the other. Mm -hmm. There's all sorts of designs that happen in grips, but they're not very common. They were tried and rejected, and that's what makes them such great collectibles, as with very unusual clubs that were those giant Nivics or super giant Nivics. Useless clubs. They make great collectibles, you know, because they're so different. But the probably my favorite grips are, are those that, that that were made so the right hand would revolve. There mm -hmm. was one that was patented in the 1890s by a guy named Kennedy, and the right hand was a cylinder. So when you grab the left hand of the of the grip up by the butt end, it was firm. You had a leather wrap up there, and you grab onto that. But then where you put your right hand was a revolving cylinder for that whole five inches there your hand was on. 
and his ball bearings underneath and everything. So you couldn't use too much right hand in the swing and, mm. you know, and so they're trying to, you know, stop people from duck hooking and supposedly going to hit the ball straight every time. Now, of course that didn't work either. Um, not that they, uh, not that people duck hook, but you, it's just, it's really hard to hit straight with that kind of only yeah. one club on, 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 the, on the grip. So, uh-huh. so yeah, the, the roller grips, another one had 20 washers, a reflex driver. It was called at 20 washers and they all revolved for your right hand and you put your hand on the club and that thing just revolves and it's, it's crazy when you hold on to it. That's a clever idea. Yeah. But oh, maybe they, not, maybe not practical. Yeah. It's just not practical. It's yeah. kind of like, kind of like, there's a lot of ideas that are great in theory. You think in terms back then, they would try to put the weight right behind the ball, right? So there's a number of clubs that were made with the weight right behind the ball. I mean, you look at the Dalrymple clubs. Those are just little, you know, just small, little, you know, just imagine a pipe that's maybe um, inch and a half or something that's chopped off and you got an inch length and some loft on each side and a shaft coming out of it or, and, and the faces of the, they're only an inch and a half wide, but all the weights right there behind the ball. It's great if you hit it in the center, but the second you miss the center of the club, you've got disaster. So the theory is one thing, but the the, the practicality is entirely different. Who was the maker uh, Higginbottom or something that made the claw hosel? Oh, that's Ramsbottom. Oh yeah, Ramsbottom. Could you tell us about that? That's also intrigued me. I love the knuckle on the shaft. Yeah, he was trying to make a new way to uh, fasten the shaft to the head and allow for better flexibility so that so the, the shafts wouldn't break. And and so he came up with this ball and claw idea. And it looks really wild, you know. It's really quite the creative creative effort, but um, it, it didn't really prove to be any better than any other way of atta- attaching the shaft. And he, he didn't sell very many. And it was just another one of those ideas that were tried and then discarded into the trash bin of time. Yeah, it does seem like artwork, though, to me, the way they somehow managed to cut that steel. Oh, it's very, it's very artistic how that was done. And you look at how it's formed and shaped, and it's beautifully so. It's not haphazard. Right. It's beautifully so. That, that's the thing, I suppose, that when I come out of it, I look, when I come out of my old golf world, and I look back, you might say, the craftsmanship of these men, they were the club makers back then were fantastic craftsmen. They really pride in their work. Just briefly, another thing that's that I found from your book are these uh, Waverly Wonder Clubs. Right. Uh, the combination of metal and wood in a in a in a in a play club. You've owned a bunch of those, I imagine. I, I see them from time to time. I'm not sure they're that rare, but the condition of them seems very wide ranging. Right. Yeah. The Waverly Horton Wonder Clubs and Ralph Tyler had the rear impact driver and, a, and another one that was also wood and aluminum. The common feature between Horton and Tyler's clubs was they had metal necks. They had metal sole plates, aluminum sole plates, aluminum necks, and either a brace that came out from the neck to the end of the toe or else they had metal, aluminum metal that came around the backside of the head. And so it does two things for you. You have a metal neck there, not going to crack. And so by having the metal neck, not going to crack, no matter what, for the most part, because they were made so they weren't going to crack. And then you had a wood face. So you have the feel of wood on the face, but you have the durability of metal in the neck. 
When you have the durability of metal on the sole, it's not going to dent or ding like wood would. The wood cracks on the face, you can take that block out and put another block in. The other thing, like with, with the Horton Club, a lot of people don't understand, recognize is the back of that brace that comes out from the, from the neck is weighted so that the weight is mostly right behind the ball and it's that brace is hollowed out on the heel and toe side so the wood block fits in there mm-hmm. and you kind of have your weight positioned right behind the face up in the middle of the club head so there's there's elements of balance and and uh you know positioning the weight not to say that it made it more effective but they would advertise it as such so they were trying <laughs> to find the more effective way right i love it could we talk just for a minute about that drain pipe putter in your book, the Tom Morris drain pipe putter? Sure. That is such a beautiful club. Is it a big deal to you or am I overestimating how cool that oh, club no. is? I got that club. That was, that was, that was a great day in my life. I mean, you I, golf club. I mean, absolutely. It's Tom. It's a, for my, I mean, you got Tom Morris long nose clubs. If you get a real early Tom Morris long nose club, that's, that's drop dead killer. And, you know, that would be, that would be a great, great club. But this, for my money, the drain pipe putter is one of the greatest Tom Morris clubs you can, you can end up with if you are so fortunate because it didn't make very many. It was obviously not popular because there's just so few of them out there. And so few designs like that ever came onto the market because they were kind of like uh, guaranteed to fail. And, and, but it's, it's so um, creative to have just a do you, can you remember the day that you acquired that? Is it that important? No, I don't remember the day. I just remember I was excited. I've been trying to re- recall who I got it from. And that's and I and that's because it was one I got earlier on. But I, I just recall that was a very meaningful club. I was looking hard for them. Yeah, it's it's stunning. Could you just tell us a little bit about your other books for the sake of our listeners? Well, uh, Club Maker's Art, of course, is what I'm probably best known for. And, and it's it's um, talks about the evolution of the golf club from the oldest known to the end of the wood shaft era. And I introduced steel shaft clubs. The next book I came out with, and, and that first one came out in, in 1997 with the second edition in 2007. It was then put into two volumes because I had so much more material and I expanded the format just because I could. I, so I did. And, and I felt like it was worthy. I'm very pleased with how it turned out, uh, incidentally. The second book, The uh, uh, the Golf Club, when the first book came out, some, some of my friends, one, one guy in particular called up and said, Jeff, I love Clubmaker's Art. It's a great book. All those pictures of all those great clubs, I feel like a little boy that just got his first Playboy or something <laughs> like He loved the pictures. And I'm saying, man, that was the research about killed me on this thing and you're loving the pictures well sure the pictures are good but but it's three I'm, I'm waiting for him to pat my back on the on the on the research but i then realized well you know people do enjoy looking at the images you know they do like that they do like seeing how creative these clubs are so i'm going to do another book and so i did the golf club just with images and little snippet a little paragraph or a couple paragraphs of information about each club but this time on that book, I went from the oldest known clubs till the year 2000. So I went all the way through the 16th, 17th, 18th, 19th centuries, you know, so uh, 20, 20th century as well. So, so anyway, not the 16th, 17th, from the 1600s to 2000. So anyway, um, that's 
what that book is about. And it's a really good read. It's really fun. It's really easy, very informative. And then my most recent book, I think it came out, I should know this, 2018, I think that the, and the putter went ping. The, the, uh, the ping golf company, John Solheim, who CEO there contacted me and asked me if I'd be interested in writing their history. And I asked him, well, what would you want out of this book? You know, kind of thing. He says, well, we don't know. That would be up to you kind of to decide. And so when I started the project, we came to terms. And so he's going to employ me and I'm going to write it. And so, so I started work on this in the first three months. I'm just doing my research to start just gathering, just gathering. Because there's so much that's been written about Karsten Soheim and the Ping Golf Clubs through history, the whole court cases with the square groups and all that. In the course of doing all this history, all this research, I kind of learned an awful lot about the club, about, about the company that the company, I think, never saw in one, in one place. It was never put together in, in one place like this. And, for example, the, the gold putters they give away to the winners. I, I, when I first started on this project, I asked one of the people there, I said, did Jack Nicklaus ever win a tournament with a ping putter and get a gold plate of putter? Well, no, but it would have been great if he had. Well, in my research, I found Nicholas won four times with a ping putter. Wow. You know, and so I'm able to, I actually was able to uncover 107 different events that were won with ping putters that ping had not accounted for because they didn't really start giving away putters. I think the first one they gave away might have been uh, to Jacqueline in 1970 or something like that. And then they started to go back and give some to other people as well. But it wasn't until 78. 1978 before they really started giving out those putters like clockwork mm -hmm. so 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 to do that research i ended up going online to there's newspaper banks where you can you know sign in and you can read the newspaper from 19 you know 65 and so i would go to every monday morning newspaper and and see who won these events and the pictures oftentimes you could photo match the winner of event like nicholas you know using a ping putter you know, when he's over in Japan or Associated Press photos or United Press right. International, you search all these databases and you see ping putters are really easy to spot back then because they were primarily the only clubs that didn't use a hosel. The, the right. shaft right out of there. Everybody else had a neck and a hosel. Sure. You know, feral on the top, you know, ping really didn't. It wasn't until the answer I had that little teeny tiny bit of a hosel to put it into. But anyway, so. So the, the ping book was, was they hired me to do that. And I take way too long for all my answers, but thank you for it. But it was really, it was really fun to do. And I think the thing that's really best about that for me was I got to tell the story of the whole square groove situation between the PGA Tour and the United States Golf Association. It takes up, I think, two and a half full chapters in there. And then the reboot of that, that, that square groove debacle in 2010, when the, when the USGA again started to, target on on grooves again and that all came out but pings were grandfathered there's a great story there how john Solheim stepped forward and actually was very good to the usga and kind and 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 and, and essentially them and the pg gave them what they wanted just because you know he was trying to you know do the right thing and wonderful family wonderful company i can't say enough good things about it and it was fun to do the book really interesting well, going back just for a minute to your story about the friend that loved the book and loved the pictures, maybe you're the first person I've ever interviewed that reads Playboy for the articles. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm just kidding. 
how, let's talk just a minute about your auctions. What's what's coming up? And uh, obviously the podcast will live on way, way beyond your next auction. But are you enjoying this bit of the trade running your own auction site? I laugh real hard because it's a real love-hate relationship. It's, it's, it's fun to get in items I haven't seen before or something that's a really great item. And I get a lot of them in. It's fun, be they clubs or balls or or books. I just had a copy of the, the Thistle, uh, the Rules of the Thistle Club that just, you know, was in my last auction and ended up selling for 16000 from, I think, 1824 when it was published. Wow. First, first book on golf that wasn't poetry, you know, it was, you know, the Black Acts of Scotland. It was actually a, a book about the game. Uh, and so that was just thrilling to have that in. But the love-hate relationship is it's fun to get all that stuff in, but it's a lot of work. It, it's, 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 it's a whole lot of work. And oh, so, so I didn't, I didn't realize you're doing, I don't know if consignment is the right term, but you're, you're brokering other people's items. No, it's because people consign to me to Jeff Ellis golf auctions, right? They consign to me and then the stuff goes up on the website and they pay me a percentage right. of the winning bid on their item. Right. And so, and so it's all consigned. So I'm actually, it works well because I'm in business with the consigner. I'm trying to help them get as much money as I can get, but I'm also in business with, with the buyer because I don't want the buyer to buy something and then go, this is a piece of garbage. Sure. And so me to vet whatever it is I'm selling to them or offering on my website. And so I try to give descriptions that are very detailed and very historical uh, so they know what they're buying and they, they'll be happy with what they get. Yeah. So it I play the middle. I try to, you know, I'm on both people's side. Yeah, no, it makes good sense. Uh, let's just for a minute, tell our listeners how to find you on social media and the web. Oh, goodness. I hate social media and the web. I hate, I'm, <laughs> it takes more time. You know, I'm, I'm an old dog. JeffEllisGolfAuctions.com. The good thing about that site, if you go on the left-hand side, you can search my past auctions and see all the different things that have sold. And some of the higher price items have some really good historical information uh, about those items. It's fun to review. I do have a Facebook website for Jeff Ellis Golf Auctions. I do think we have an Instagram, Jeff Ellis Golf Auctions. But if anybody wants to contact me, don't contact me through Facebook or Instagram because I don't hardly ever go there and read it. But anybody wants to talk to me about that stuff they can just email about their clubs or what have you books balls whatever they can email me at jeff at jeff ellis golf auctions that's auctions with an s.com and i'm happy to respond i respond to every email that comes in most of the time yeah well thank you this has been fascinating i really appreciate your time i do want to end with a question that brings us back to the very beginning of this discussion do you still have that Mickey Mantle baseball card? I do. All right. I love it. <laughs> well, Jeff, it, thanks for your time. It's pretty well warm, but I got it. Yeah. Well, I, I'm so grateful for your time and your books and all of your sharing of wisdom. Thank you very, very much. My pleasure, Robert. Thank you. Great to see you. Okay. Bye-bye.